I'm Judy, compulsive overeater, alcoholic. Um, let's see. First of all, I want to thank Roy for um, asking me to come here tonight. And um, this is OAAA, right? OAA. Oh, OAA. Oh, it's a good thing I asked. <laughs> what? Oh, people that are double winners. <laughs> that would be moi. <laughs> but I'll stick to OA because that's where I am. <laughs> and I didn't know I was being taped either, which is really interesting because the last time I was taped and he taped me, um, I listened to the tape afterwards, and oh, God, I thought, oh, never, ever. I just can't even speak again. I was so humiliated. I mean, I went into a serious depression. I never listened to the full tape. I didn't. I gave it away. It was like it's like, like touching the flame, you know, and on the stove. It was like I just got rid of it. Um, so hang on to your seats. <laughs> um yeah, so, you know, I've been abstinent, continuous abstinence, meaning I haven't binged, I haven't purged, I haven't had laxative abuse, I haven't used water pills, I haven't had uh, surgeries, I haven't um, used over-the-counter things to make me lose weight, to, uh, you know, have a cessation in appetite, uh, give me energy, what else haven't I done? exercised uh, compulsively, um, thrown up, consumed great massive amounts of food in a short period of time for 17 years and four months. Yeah. (laughs) Isn't that something? (laughs) What a miracle, huh? It's a miracle. It's absolutely a miracle. And um, and that's day-to-day, back-to-back. And um, if you knew, to me this disease is so, like, it's the part of me, there's a part of me that's, that's so reflective and quiet and intense and gets my feelings hurt very easily and sensitive and um, creative. And that part of me, was was directly related to my eating. You know, the relationship I had with food um, was directly involved with that part of me. And because I haven't had binges or purges or starving, um, my lowest weight is 87 pounds. My highest weight is 140 pounds. Um, and, and since I've not been like primarily obsessed with food for for many years most of the time um, I have that world that's so rich and full it's like this very rich uh, world and I and then there's a whole other part of me that's like wild and crazy and funny and lighthearted and sometimes it's a little confusing because you know like I I a couple of years ago, I published a clinical article, and people will read this article and they'll say, "Like you, did, it doesn't match." But it's this part of me that's intellectual, studious, intense. Um, I paint like crazy. I'm, you know, this morning I, I went to an OA meeting to give a, a woman I sponsor a cake, and I got up this morning and painted 
you know, and last night I came home from work, my job, which is separate than all of this, and um, painted, and I painted this Last Supper last year, which is, uh, I painted a contemporary Last Supper with no food. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it's a 48 by 48 oil painting, and it's so incredible, you know, it's got women and animals, because I just adore animals. Oh, I love animals. And... um and there's no food there because it's symbolic of community. And prior to the program, food and community were one. And food took precedence. When I was going to get together with you, I was thinking of what I was going to eat after we were together because maybe while we were together, I'd want to look like I didn't eat that much. Or... Maybe I was too nervous to eat in front of you, so later on, um, I would while I was with you, I'd be preoccupied because I'd be thinking about later on when I was going to eat, and it helped me deal with intimacy. You know, it it just took the edge off of um, how afraid I was to get close to people, and it was also a part of my family culture. Like what we did when we loved you is we gave you food. You got food. Um, my family spoke what I've come to realize was the language of food. And um, I really had to unlearn that when I came in here. You know, um, I remember when I was in university how I'd, I'd go home. I went to Penn State University, and I, my mom and dad lived in Butler, and I would travel home, and I would get in fights. Like, my mother made these little... Uh, sugar cookies, right? And they had these this green icing on them, and then these green um, jimmies and these green sparkles, and they were sugar cookies, right? And my boyfriend was at Temple University, and he came. We were both, you know, I was working on my degree, and we both came back to Pennsylvania for Christmas, and um, he started to get into these cookies, right? And I raged at him. I was so enraged. I tore off the whole family, you know. How dare he eat those green Jimmy cookies. And I was like a lunatic, you know. I mean, I was so covetous of of my food. And, um, and, and it represented love to me. So it was almost like he was, you know, robbing my home or something. And I think back on those days and how when I would leave after being home for like a vacation, you know, I'd go back and it really like close to a sugar coma. I remember sitting in the back seat of, of my roommate's car and would drive back to Penn State, and I was so out of it and, and numb and sick, and, I, and in a way I loved that feeling as well. So it was really kind of confusing. But um, my dad was obese and lost quite a bit of weight throughout his life. He was on diet, so I come from a, a history of and He was also alcoholic. My mother, my mother always told me she was fat, but I look back at her pictures now, she's dead, and she doesn't look fat at all. So I don't get that one unless, you know, she was probably like, just had body distortion part of the disease. Um, my sister still uh, de- uh, struggles with this, this disease, goes back and forth. You know, I go back to see her and she weighs, you know, she lost 50 pounds and in two months she gained 60 pounds and my niece right now, which is really fascinating because my sister is, like, so in this disease, and my niece is 10, and my niece is like, you know, she said, don't send her any clothes for the holidays and because uh, I bought her these dresses, you know, and she said, don't send them to her. And she sent me a picture. My niece is 10, and she 
She's big for a 10-year-old kid, but she probably weighs a good 175, you know. And, um, you know, my sister, I, when I'm with her, I see, I see how, what the family disease was like because she'll, you know, like my husband and I went back to visit about a couple of years ago and uh, she was asking me, there's this, again, the language of food, you know, she says, well, what does your husband like to eat for dinner? And I said, I don't know, ask him. And she got so mad at me, you know, like I broke a rule, you know, I didn't know what he liked. And she was like, just looked at me with this rage, you know, and I thought, oh, my God, I've broken a rule. And um, she, and then she asked him if he wanted something, and she made these scallops, you know, and she sat there at the dinner table, like, leering at me. She says, he does like scallops, you know. And I thought, oh, boy. <laughs> and, then, and then what she doesn't know is my husband's, like, really kind of loose. He's a normie, you know, and... Um, she had fixed the dinner, you know, and then she said, would you like more scallops? And, and she said, yes. You don't do that if you dinner. You don't just, you know. I mean, I sure would. I wouldn't get up on the table. And it was all finished, and she, she gets up to make them more scallops. And she's, like, pissed, you know. She's, like, throwing a frying pan around. And, and that was something else confusing in my family, because sometimes people would get mad at you with food. Like, my mother, one day, when my she my stepfather, the way they were fighting, she threw the turkey out in the front yard. and. <laughs> You know, there were like big fights around food, you know. You bastard, if you don't like this meal, then if you don't like my pie and you don't think my crust is normal, then I'll just show you and should take the pie, those big old pie ceramic things and throw it out in the front yard and smash it. And, you know, like all this drama around food, you know, and... And, and she'd make these big elaborate meals in my family. It was huge elaborate meals, and everybody would be pissed. You know, did you like it? What do you think of my cooking? Well, there's one thing I do good, and that's cook. You know, it's like, you know, it's like a gun. You know, it's like there's one thing I do good, like hold a gun to your head. It's intense, you know, and that's how I was raised, you know. It was like, and, and it gave me an enormous amount of comfort, you know. As a kid, oh, I remember, I... I remember like it was yesterday, you know, if life was hard because my parents were drinking and there was all this poverty and we kept moving, you know, and it was a big old mess and my father was like this master philanderer and, uh, you know, and would move into like another house and, and I remember having my like, uh, you know, just with comfort, my green, those spearmint leaves that were gummy with the sugar on them under my pillow and life was okay. Life was okay, because I knew at night I would go to bed, and under my pillow I'd have these little green spearmint gummy things. And I would think about them, you know, and when I'd go to school, no matter how chaotic. I had all D's when I was a kid in grade school. I graduated Penn State magna cum laude, right? So it didn't have to do with my intelligence. It had a lot to do with my home life and many, many addictions running throughout not only me, because as a kid, I mean, I was obsessed with food, and um, but it had a lot to do with that, you know, and chaos. Um, I don't think if I think if my family were the perfect family, I would still be a compulsive overeater, because my metabolism. It's like in the big book, it says, you know, that uh, it's a spiritual. It's a spiritual malady. I have I have like a physical allergy when I eat certain things. I react unlike other people react. I mean, I see my husband, you know, what he does, I, he'll, like, just stop, you know, 
with certain foods that it's inconceivable to me that 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 would occur to me. Um, and in program, you know, I've, I because I work the steps, you know, I realize there are certain things that I'm powerless over, and I realize that I have to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand God, which means there are certain things that, um, certain food groups that I, I can't handle. But I lost my point, and what was my point? Um, my, my family... Um, my what I have that that wasn't my point but <laughs> but anyhow my family you know was really kind of crazy and chaotic and food gave me comfort as a little kid I would go to food for comfort and it did comfort me you know I'd think about it I I remember school yeah I remember school being obsessed with food you know they used to make these little peanut butter crackers these peanut butter and oatmeal things and and they when they'd have bake sale I'd be like really good in school so I could be for, called on first in order to get that cookie. And it was like one of the only times I wasn't disturbing the class because I get used to get so bored in school. It was when they were going to have those cookies, you know, and I'd think about them day and night. And, I mean, you think about the kind of energy that took, you know. So you fast forward, I realize I'm going to get out of my hometown, Butler, Pennsylvania, and make something of myself, and I go to school, and I have all these scholarships and grants and I'm a cleaning lady I got through school being a cleaning lady undergraduate school and I thought I'm going to move to California and everything's going to be different so I graduate I come out here I get married to this guy my daughter right now I'm 50 I'm 50 in 10 days I'm having my 50th birthday and um yeah it's exciting (laughs) in a mixed way Um, but I moved out to California and you know it was all going to be different and what happened is I repeated everything it was like this I ended up with the same life you know and I had this I I came out I was teaching right and I was teaching like I was working with you know like in the behavioral sciences and I was working with like very sick kids and you know, I had done some institutional work, worked in institutions back then in the 70s when before they deinstitutionalized the, here in the U.S. Um, and I came out here and uh, I married this guy and had this house and we bought this little house for $54,000 in Manhattan Beach Tree Section, by the way, um, which I got divorced and didn't get very much money out of it. I'll throw that in. Because <laughs> I was in my disease and everything, you know. But... I moved out here from Pennsylvania, and I weighed like 140. And back in Pennsylvania, that wasn't like so bad. But out here, it's like there were all these models, and everybody was skinny, and you know, it's and I and I thought, and I so I started going on this whole diet thing, and uh, you know, they had different kind of diets back then, like these protein drinks that you drink and. I don't even know what the name of it was, but I know they took it off the market because it lacked potassium and people were dying of heart attacks. And But I remember all of a sudden feeling like such a sense of control, you know, that I started to be able to control my food. And um, I got really seriously into the vomiting um, then. And I got into a whole other business then as well. Um, but I was a good vomiter, you know. I never vomited, like, um, I didn't have, like, 
you know, I wasn't discolored with my cheeks hanging out this far like some vomiters, they get, you know, you can tell. I was kind of like I'd just, you know, serve dinner and have my little family dinner and I'd go in to the bathroom and throw it up and come back out and my husband was a musician. I'd say, oh, when you come home, bring me a hot fudge sundae and I'd be waiting until two in the morning for this big hot fudge sundae, you know, and that, that was like the marker of my day. And I, I'd eat that hot fudge sundae and then go throw it up and... And life was just consumed with food and no food and skinny. And I got down to 87, and I thought I was just so beautiful and gorgeous. And and that's when I got 12 steps. I got 12 steps in 1979. I got I got into the acting business for a while, which I had no business being in. I didn't. I, I didn't. I couldn't memorize. I had a terrible time memorizing. You know, I did like. I did three's company, and I had they counted to five, and I just would stand there. You know, I couldn't move, and then I couldn't remember what to say, and I just wasn't. That's not my brain doesn't work very well in that way. And um, I'd be a nervous wreck, and the catering trucks would come, and I'd just eat everything on them, and <laughs> you know, and. Uh, but I got into that business, which was really freaky, and, and actually it was my agent, you know, my agent at the time, and now she, I don't know where she is, but the last time I saw her, I, you know, I, I don't, I think she had, hadn't been coming to the program for quite a while, but she took me into the room, and uh, she said, you know, and this, again, was in 1979, and she said, um, what are you doing at night? And I thought, oh, my God. I thought, oh, somebody knows. And, uh, you know, she said, shut the door. And she said, and I shut the door and she said, what are you doing at night? And, um, you know, I said, I'm throwing up. And she said, uh, she said, you know, I'm, I'm a member of Overeaters Anonymous. She said, I want, I want you, I want to take you there. You know, and she said, and you need to get out of this industry. She did. <laughs> She said, she said, you need to get out of this industry for a year and uh, get your food together and your life. And um, she, took me, she took me to meetings. And, um, and I, I also, at that time, I had an acting school and I had a theater that I had opened. And um, I, kind of, I kept that, but I, I didn't, like, try to act or anything for about a year and I came to the program and but you know I was so not understanding of step one two and three in retrospect I so had like no idea about what powerlessness meant I was so willful you know I would come to the program and it was like it was like it was like heaven my watch like when are we going to be finished you know I couldn't wait to get out of meetings when she wanted me to do a fourth step, I said, get a life. I said, why do you want to know all my business? I just, like, didn't get it, you know. I was so willful. And I lost, I kept, I kept the weight down, so I figured, I don't need OA. I thought it was losers. I thought it was Lonely Hearts Club Band. You know, I thought people weren't that, like me, in all these wonderful ways. And I was so wrong and self-centered and blind by the disease so I came in kind of got my weight organized and settled didn't ha didn't vomit 
I stopped vomiting. I was like, that's my absence. Okay, I won't vomit. So I didn't vomit. And then 17 and a half years ago, so I was like kind of, you know, white knuckling in all those years between 79 and 17 and a half years ago. And 17 and a half years ago, I, I got into AA. I got sober. And uh, six months later, I still considered myself part of OA. Six, six months later, though, I threw up. I threw up a piece of broccoli. I went back home to my family, and, of course, they were feeding me and this big family event. And I threw up a piece of broccoli, and my friend Leslie Kendall said to me, you know, you got to take a new abstinent date. You're not abstinent. You need to get honest. And um, and and I did. I came back to OA and I said, you know, I haven't been coming to the program. And I threw up. And I and I and since that date, I've been back. And since that date, you know, I mean, I got a sponsor and I did surrender to this powerlessness of the disease. Because there I had been on all diff- all the spectrums of the disease, you know, the anorexia and the throwing up. And um, and I really did surrender and got very serious about the program. And I, you know, I met Nicole before the meeting. And I, I have a list, you know, like I got together with my sponsor. Because the other person that brought me in brought me in on gray sheet. But I got together with my sponsor and I made this list up, you know, of what what were my trigger foods, like what was going to make me off and running, like a trail mix was, for example. I couldn't, if I ate it, I'd just go nuts. I'd start binging. So I had this whole list of what are my trigger foods, and then I had a list of, um, like, all the stuff I could eat, guilt-free eating. And, you know, and and that's, and then I had a, an agreement. So this is still how I worked the program when we were talking before the meeting. I, you know, I had an agreement that I would call my sponsor and talk to her before I changed anything. And this is where, like, four, five, six, seven, and not eight and nine, but four, five, six, and seven, you know, all about my defects and my shortcomings. This is where I started to learn about it because I realized, like, if I'd want to eat something, it was usually usually an, an alarm, one one alarm that, yeah, I'm a compulsive overeater, and I have this illness, and it's a, it's a spiritual malady, so it makes me have to reach out to you. You know, if I decide that tonight I have to eat 20 ding-dongs, I need to call somebody or reach out to you, or uh, maybe I'm lonely, and maybe I don't know I'm angry, and maybe I don't know I'm tired or hungry. Um, and also it makes me... Uh, it had to make me deal with intimacy in a whole new way. So, but then I see my defects and my shortcomings because just because the food is cleaned up, you know, like I can't just decide that, oh, I, I haven't had, I haven't, so so I have that list, right? And I stay within that list. And inevitably, if early on, if I ever wanted to change that list, it was because something was going on with me, you know, uh, Maybe one I was running one of my defects of character. Um, maybe I was being greedy. Maybe I was being slothful. Maybe I was being uh, jealous or envious or not right-sized or not realizing what my limitations are or not accepting life on life's terms. That was always a big one for me. Part of my compulsive overeating, I think, was about make. I just wanted life to be beautiful. I wanted life to be beautiful. You know, and if I ate, everything was beautiful. When I weighed 140 pounds, if I ate enough and I took my girdle off, I weighed 105. It was amazing. 
If I, you know, if I, if I got enough into the food, like my, I remember early on in my fourth step what came up is when I ate, I fantasized. And I started to notice that, you know, it was like such news to me. Oh my God, look at, when I eat, I fantasize. So life on life's terms, I got to start learning how to live it, really, on life's terms, you know. Soon after I came here, uh, I could no longer be with my ex-husband. It was such a not-for-me relationship. And we got into separation therapy, and it was really wonderful. You know, I didn't want the drama anymore. He's coming to my 50th birthday party. I love him so much as an ex-husband and the father of my daughter. But we're so different. And I can see now, I can see now um, how unrealistic I was, how I was trying to make people who they really weren't, you know, and life a way that it really wasn't. And... Um, and then when I did, like, and then, of course, I also had my wreckage, like with him. There were many things I did to that man today that I, I see that weren't only related to the disease, but were related to youth. Um, and not being able to take stop gaps and blind myself through periods of time where I could be in the food, I've been able to take responsibility. And that's such a good feeling. You know, and I expect the people in my life to be responsible for themselves as well. Um, eight and nine, I uh, I made the list. I made the list that people make fun of uh, of the amends I needed to make. You know, like the kind of person on television looking up the old boyfriends. Hey, Jack. You know, it's Judy. I have an amends to make. <laughs> you know, I had one person from Virginia. One of the wives answered, and she says. Uh, she says, oh, yeah, is this like that television show I saw on that, like, Bill W., where you call and you say you're sorry? <laughs> but, you know, I made my financial amends. Um, I made my institutional amends because I did some things with institutions that weren't okay. I made my personal amends. Some people were dead, so I couldn't really make the amends. I made living amends. In my amends step, my sponsor told me some things to not do. Like there was something I wanted to tell somebody. There were two somebodies. I wanted to tell them something, and to this day I haven't told them. Because she told me, your amends is to keep your mouth shut. Some people, my amends was to stay out of their life. Because I got that all confused, you know, like somebody I wanted to see maybe again. I wanted to go make an amends. She said, uh-uh, you stay out of that person's life. I had wonderful miracles happen to me, all beyond my wildest dreams. I... I kind of shut down for, I, I, not, I didn't really shut down. I think I went into like, um, like a receptive mode early on. And I, I learned to be a person I didn't, I knew it was in me, but I didn't know if I could ever be that kind of person. And I see somebody in this room that reminds me of my old friend, B.B. Besh. She was in this program. And um, we were like sisters in this program, and she has a daughter that's my daughter's age. And, uh, you know, life on life's terms, like, for example, she's, she was a few years older than me, and she was the kind of person. See, I, I got it real confused the, the first three steps in early sub- abstinence and sobriety. I thought if I was really good, all these good things would happen to me and the people I love. And that's not really what happens. You know, that's so magical thinking and uh, not truly powerless. 
you know, still running an agenda. And, and I think finally, like, when Bibi got cancer and um, so much thought that she was going to beat this cancer and, you know, paid her taxes and was so honest and such a hard worker and, uh, you know, came to this program and uh, did her 10th step and did her 11th and very spiritual and sweet and a good woman. And this cancer just riddled her body. And she did, she passed away um, four, four years ago. Uh, but what I was able to do is, you know, we went to talk a sushi one day. And um, she was eating all the sushi, right? And so was I. And we went to the bathroom because she was getting sick from the chemo. And, you know, I was able to hold hold her while she threw up in the bathroom with talk a sushi. And then when we went back to the sushi bar, she said to the guy, she said, you know, it's not your sushi that I'm having a problem with. I just have cancer. And so I'm doing chemotherapy and I got sick. And I think, what a way to live, you know. And um, But that really, that really uh, liberated me in a way because I stopped thinking that if I do all these really good things and I'm a good girl, all these good things are going to happen to me and everybody I love. Um, 11 and 12, I get down on my knees. This is what my day looks like. I have a beautiful home that I love dearly. I take great care of it. I have this sweater on. I'm, I'm like a kid. I have this sweater on that my husband bought me, you know, and Today I'm out in the rose garden with my spike heels and I get it caught in the rose bush and it, I got a, a snag on it and, and you know, I'm gonna have some bumps and bruises in this lifetime because I like to live. You know, um, and I get up in the morning and I say my prayers and my meditation and I do step 11. Every morning I get 10 minutes at least. I turn my alarm clock on, I turn my tea water on, I say my prayers, get down on my knees. Um, I go read my books, you know those little uh, one day at a time books every day? They're very old and they have, every year I've been uh, reading them so it has like, you know, all the years on it and it has all the little events that were happening through the years like Paris with your daughter, you know, um, Tahiti with your husband. You know, I take him everywhere I go. Uh, and then I read them. And then sometimes I write. And then I go about my day. You know, I have three meals a day no matter what. I have nothing in between. That's for me, not for everybody. Um, I don't have any white flour or sugar one day at a time, no matter what. Um, Today I went to a meeting this morning. I talked at another meeting this week. Uh, I, you know, I answer the phone if people call and need help. Um, throughout the day, throughout the day, I turn my will and my life over to the care of God. I have these candles in my office, and oftentimes when I'm on my break, I'll just light the candles and I'll kind of like remember God, or I'll get down on my knees. And sometimes I've gone into ladies' rooms and I've put the little toilet paper thing down, you know, if I was becoming too willful and turned my will and my life over to the care of God, as I understand God. And um, I've done a few fourth steps. I love the tenth step. The women I sponsor, I, I'm so big on the tenth step because 
what I think is so incredible about this program is learning what's my part, you know? My part in my compulsive overeating was primarily that I didn't take care of myself and I allowed people to do things that were unacceptable to me. And I don't do that anymore, you know? I just don't get mistreated very much because if someone does, I usually get rid of them because I can't afford it. You know, I'm not as tolerant as I was when I was compulsively overeating. Um, I have a great relationship with my daughter today. She moved back to New York, and her first day in uh, of work was in Manhattan on September 10th of this year. And I was like an animal for about two hours in the morning because I didn't know if she was hurt or what was going on. And uh, she's fine. Um, I got word yesterday she passed the New York law exam. So she's a New York lawyer, my kid. <laughs> um, I don't talk to her about her weight when she asks me. You know, about her weight. That's like her business and her higher powers business. Um, I have a great husband. I have a sweet dog. And I'm present. You know, that's the biggest gift, I think, of being abstinent is I'm present. I'm present for my own moods, you know. And, um, and it's time for questions and answers. His question is, when it comes to academics, success, uh, education, how do I fit that in the framework of easy does it? I am extremely driven, extremely driven. Um, and I love the part of the big book that talks about us being right-sized. You know, uh, I have so much time. I went back for my master's degree because I had to finish it up to do what I really love to do, which I do. And it's like I had so much time. You know, I, and I went to, I go to three meetings a week. That's my average no matter what. And it's amazing. I look back at it and I think, my God, I was working full time. I was in this internship. I was going to the program. And if I keep, the, the miracle to me is, and the mystery, by the way, it's like, and I also, I also wanted to paint like Vermeer. It's this like painter that's an old guy that, like 18th century painter. And I paint like him now. And I thought I could paint like him when I was 79. That was my goal. But being abstinent, I have so much time. It's ridiculous. And I have so much energy, and I'm like 50, you know. I was I went to Crunch Gym last week on Sunday, and I took an African dance class, and I made it through the whole thing. <laughs> I mean, you know, it was amazing, and I'm going to be 50. And it's because I'm not preoccupied with food. I have accomplishments beyond my wildest dreams, and you know what else? They're not the most important thing to me either. They really aren't. My career, I love what I do, and it's a job. You know, my job is to be like, okay, so, so it, time opens up. 
and, and the easy does it is sometimes I, ha- I just stop myself. I'm like a, I'm, I'm like a dog, some, like my dog, you know. He's very willful. I just stop myself. I've learned in this program to stop, halt. It's enough already. Like today I had a two-hour break and I was going to scrub my rugs. Yeah. And I said, you don't do that, Judy. But that's through, through having time in the program because there's that, like, you know, that willfulness. And as a result, I mean, I have degrees and all sorts of things because I got time. So I don't have to, like, be all rigid. This is how I used to be, like, rap like this, you know. I was like, everything I did was like this. <laughs> like my family, you know. It's like, oh, calm down a bit, okay? You can get the same thing done just a little slower. So I practice easy. does it a lot. I sleep. I watch TV. I love TV. My husband gets so mad, you know. Can't you read? No, I like TV. I've read enough. You know, I lay there and watch TV. I can't wait tonight for mad TV. It's like, I, that's what I can't wait for. I stay awake. He goes to bed, you know, and I'm like up until one watching TV. Ooh, it's fun. fun. What else? How do you do a 10-step? How do I do a 10-step? Well, yeah, if anybody wants to see it, it's continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. It's, um, I, I take, like, I, I take a 10-step a lot. Continued, because personal inventory is, I, I have the same, usually, usually what I do with a 10-step is I'll start to look at, uh, I'll do like a teeny little inventory. Like, first of all, you know, and, and there's a, there's four columns in the fourth step. And I'll talk about my own, what it affects, the cause. You know, first of all, like, what's going on? It, uh, mad at uh, somebody and the cause because somebody uh, s- slandered me or said something to me and affects my what? I'll just do, it's like a, I do a mini fourth, you know, and it affects my what? Well, it affects my reputation or my status or security. And, and what's my part? Well, first of all, that I have such an investment in such a ridiculous situation. And, and then I think, and did I slight this person somehow? What was my part? And I spend a lot of time thinking, oh, yeah, well, maybe, maybe how you did that, maybe what you did was okay, but how you did it could be different. And maybe you need to go back and make an apology. You know, maybe you need to tell that person you're sorry. Or like my husband, I've got to make amends to him. Um, my daughter sometimes, uh, just for day-to-day things, you know, and living amends. Um, so that's how I do it, and I usually write it. And if I'm stumped on it, I call my sponsor and talk to her about it, you know. And sometimes it's just in my head. Like, I'll get an attitude, and then I'll think, well, what's my part here, and do I owe this person amends, you know? And that's how I do it. And then I make the amends. So, yes? How do you continue to place principles before personalities if somebody really pisses you off? How do I uh, put principles before personalities if somebody pisses me off? Somebody in meetings. Oh, I love that one. Because you know what I find? The longer I'm here the more I'm prone to judgment and the more I have to make a U-turn and learn about compassion. Does that mean I tolerate the intolerable or unacceptable? No. My daughter says, my mother will tell you how she feels. You'll never have to guess. You know? 
ask me what I think, and I will absolutely tell you. Everybody in my life knows that. Um, but in the meetings, if I get like, ah, da, 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 I think, yeah, you know what, Judy? This means you need to have more compassion. This means you need to see what that person is up to and how that's you or it was you. But most importantly, if you keep judging it, how it's going to be you. Because I have inevitably, what I judge, I usually do. Yes? You mentioned that um, your family, you know, they were all around food and cognitive sort of like that. And in recovery, when you went back to your family and all that food was in front of you and all that turmoil was in front of you, that's what Mm-hmm. How did you deal with that? In early recovery, how did I deal with the family and all the food around? I gave them a language. I taught them a language. I would say to them, you know, I think, and they'd look at me like I'm crazy sometimes, but I'd say, I think when you give this to me, what you're trying to do is tell me you love me. And what I would prefer you do is tell me you love me. Mm-hmm. You don't have to tell me you love me through that. And if you need to tell me you love me through that, I'll take it with me. But the most important part is, for you to just let me know you love me. Like when my sister has meltdowns, I'll say to her, Honey, I, you know I love you, you know? Like if she'll try to force feed me or something, I'll say, You know I love you, right? It's okay for you to tell me you love me, um, which isn't always possible on their part. My mother was good at it, and so was my father. They both passed away, but they both got very good at it, you know, being able to not use food to show me how much they love me, you know? Anybody else? No? Yes? Uh, when you sponsor people, can you describe a little bit about how you sponsor people? How do I sponsor people? Um, the women I sponsor call me usually on Sundays, and they're kind of lined up in the morning, 9, 9.20, you know, 9.45. And uh, we go through the steps together. I... They start on step one through three and think about the powerlessness and how their life is unmanageable, and we spend time talking about that and thinking about that together. They write a fourth. We get together. We do the fifth step, whereby they give it to me. We both give it to God. We usually burn it or do some kind of a ritual. Um, You know, I send them off with six and seven, and that they stay aware of their shortcomings and their defects and ask God humbly to remove them. And from their fourth, we start an eight and nine. We start to, you know, make the list of the amends. And then go out and we talk about how they're going to make those amends. Eleven, we talk about how they want to have their spiritual program. Not all of them believe in God. I don't. You don't have to believe in God, but you do need to believe in something. I think of at least OA. Um, and twelve, they you know go out there and be of service. And I have a woman I've been sponsoring in San Diego for 15 years now. She's been down there for 13 years, and you know, we talk. Did my art play a role in my recovery? Yeah. Hilda Levine was my grand sponsor. She's in a different program, but she was my grand sponsor. And she told me, um, she was just very inspiring. And I, my art is my reflective time. I have an art studio that I built in my garage. And I go back there and I'm quiet. I am not with the world. I need that part of me. I have a very isolated, healthy part of me that's isolated, quiet, uh, withdrawn, and I come out, 
Instead of having a bunch of vomit in the Santa Monica Bay, I have some great art. Instead of weighing, you know, 140, I have great art because there's a part of me that's real quiet and it's a healthy part of me. It's not like a bad part. And that's it. <laughs>